So we're continuing on in the book of Judges, basically with the history of Israel, early Israel, in the promised land, in the land of Canaan. And as you recall, when we closed last week in chapter 5, we're told that the Lord provided security and stability for 40 years for Israel. After delivering the Israelites from King Jabin and Sisera, his military commander of Canaan. And this deliverance was through Deborah and Barak. And of course, we must mention Yael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite. She played an important part of that. So an entire generation after this piece of history experiences peace and prosperity in the land. And the battlefield that we read about in chapters 4 and 5, where Yahweh destroyed the chariot army of Sisera, the plain of Jezreel, this plain becomes a rich farmland for Israel, providing bountiful harvest for the Israelite farmers. It was truly a land of plenty, a land of milk and honey. So as you know, as you read through the Bible, especially the Old Testament, we see that the people of Israel are continually reminded of the law of God. You cannot walk away from the Old Testament without seeing that, how important the law is to Israel. And the law involves their covenantal obligations to the Lord. The entire Levitical law that we read in the book of Leviticus is a means of a reminder to the Israelites that they must be conscious of their relationship with the Lord God in all that they do every day of their lives. That's the intention of the Levitical law, to show the intentionality of the relationship with God, that it is just not happenstance, that it is central to their life. And we should see that also, that it's central to our life. So at the end of the wilderness journey, just to give some highlights on what, on what the Israelites saw as they entered the land of Canaan. So at the end of the wilderness journey, Moses acts again to remind Israel of their covenant obligations. We read this in Deuteronomy chapter 27, where he instructs them, on that day that they crossed over the river Jordan into the land that the Lord was giving them, that they were to set up large stones and paint them with lime, in effect, make them white, so writing would show up on them. And write, and the text says very plainly, write very plainly on the stones all the words of the law that Yahweh had given them. So God originally, we are told, had written the law upon tablets of stone with his own finger. And Moses had proclaimed this law to the Israelites. They had heard it with their ears. They were reminded of it constantly. Now they're to perform this task. And this task is to be done in a very precise manner. And the task, if you think about it, involves their mind and their body. They have to think about it as they're doing it. It requires preparation, it requires thought, and then it requires the mind instructing the hands to write 
all of the words very plainly upon these stones. So in effect, the Israelites, upon God's command, established a monument that clearly linked God's blessing of land to the covenant law. And at that time, Moses very clearly laid out to Israel Yahweh's blessing for them, for their covenant faithfulness. And covenant faithfulness, they were told, would result in an abundant life. This is going to impact what we see happen in in this section of Judges we're in. So I want to read Deuteronomy 28, 1 through 6. This is Moses speaking to the Israelites. He's reminding them of the covenant blessings. And he says to the Israelites, And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you. If you obey the voice of the Lord your God, blessed you shall be in the city, and blessed you shall be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. Moses is painting the picture of a wonderful life awaiting Israel in the promised land. If they faithfully obey the Lord, if they remain faithful to the covenant that the Lord had established with them. So on the day of crossing over the river into the promised land, Moses commanded that the people would be reminded that there were also curses for breaking the covenant. That is, if they were disobedient, if they were unfaithful. And upon crossing over, Moses said the Israelites, excuse me, the Levites were to declare to all Israel in a loud voice the curses for disobedience. And after each pronounced curse, Moses instructed that the Israelites, all the people, shall say, Amen, or surely it is true. Which is a a very strong affirmation to what had been said. They are agreeing to the covenant curses. They They are made aware of the covenant curses. They were reminded of them. It's not the first time they had heard them. And yet, Israel disobeyed time and time again. And when we read Judges, we might wonder at this repetition of sinful disobedience. It just seems to be an awful lot. Well, it's made especially clear in Judges because this is one of the themes of the book. We're to to see this. This, this, this repeating of disobedience, this, this cycle that goes on. And what we need to realize is the underlying condition in disobeying God for Israel and for people throughout the ages, including us today, is a lack of love for God. It's true of all people. It doesn't matter if it's Old Covenant or New Covenant times. And it's not just the Old Testament that teaches that, that that pronounces a curse on those who do not love the Lord. 
Paul in 1 Corinthians 6.22, he closes out that letter to Corinth and he says, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. That's very strong language, isn't it? If you don't love the Lord, you are to be cursed. And the Bible's very clear that love for the Lord is not just an emotional feeling. It's what we've been talking about throughout Judges. It's obedience to God's law. We obey out of love, a love that we are given through the transformation of the Holy Spirit. What Israel experienced in the generation after the deliverance by Deborah and Barak, and remember, the text tells us in chapter 5, at the very end of chapter 5, verse 31, the end of verse 31, we're told the land had rest for 40 years. This was the fruit of covenant faithfulness. It was a demonstration of love, or a hob, as we talked about last week, towards the Lord God through obedience to him. But after 40 years, this changed. Something happened. Perhaps the generation that experienced that torrent that Yahweh sent, that swept away the iron chariots of Sisera below Mount Tabor on the plains of Jezreel, perhaps that generation was gone, those who experienced it. Perhaps the next generation just assumed life would always be good. Maybe they were even a little bit resentful of the laws and the commandments that they must obey, thinking that stability and plenty were the normal pattern of life. Maybe they just wanted more. Maybe they thought they could get more. Maybe they were bored and wanted new experiences. And they're attracted to what they see the Canaanites doing in their religious festivals in worship. We're not told exactly why this apostasy happens time and time again, but we understand why. We should understand why because we've experienced the why of disobedience towards God in our own lives. But for whatever the reason, Israel turned against the Lord God again. Now we're going to get into our new text, Judges chapter 6. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6 if you'd like to follow along with me in your Bibles. And we read here, The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. 
So again, we read that phrase that we're seeing over and over again in this book. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And in our prologue that we went over, the prologue to Judges, the first couple of chapters, explains this evil was always of the same sort. It was apostasy. It was abandoning the Lord. It was spiritual adultery. It's serving and bowing down to the Baals and the Asheroth, these, these pagan deities that the Canaanites who surrounded Israel worshipped. So Israel now is going to suffer seven years at the hand of the, Amid- the Midianites, the Amalekites, and the people of the east. And nomadic raiders, entire camel corps of them, would, would, would sweep into the land as regular as clockwork, like locusts, as soon as the harvest bore fruit. And this is what the author is, is how he describes them. And locust-like like, um, uh, terms, where they, would, they, they were beyond counting, like locusts. You can't count locusts. And locusts come in and devour everything, and that's what these invaders would do. They were like human locusts. They would appear out of the east in hordes and settle upon the land and pick the fields bare. And like birds of prey, mixing our metaphors here, they would carry away every sheep, donkey, and ox. In other words, every economically valuable animal that Israel had would be carried away. What this is telling us, and we don't, we don't see it very clearly because we're not in an agricultural culture, but this was utter destruction of Israel's economic base. We can relate to that because there's a lot of things going on in our world that pertain to economics and the impact on our economy. So we should understand that in that sense. This was such a fierce invasion that every time it happened over these seven years, the Israelites had to flee into the hills from these fierce invaders and hide among the rocks and in the caves, taking what they could with them, some meager provisions, hopefully some seed grain so they could plant crops again, and perhaps a lamb or a donkey if there was, if there was time while the marauders encamped below. And this, this term that the text uses, encamped, is a military term. It was military camps that were set up. So the Israelites up above in the caves and amongst the rocks watched helplessly. As down below, their crops were devoured and their farm animals, which were their tools of agricultural production, were carried off. Imagine if you were a farmer and every year for seven years marauders would come into your farm and take every single implement you had to farm the land. And when you returned with only your life and your family, if you were blessed enough to escape any further predations, you would have to find the means of production all over again. But this was exactly what Moses had warned Israel would suffer for covenant disobedience. Going back to Deuteronomy chapter 28, 
verses, I'm going to read verses 29 and 31 and see if this warning doesn't match what the text of, Deut- of Judges 6 is telling us. Moses tells the people, you shall not prosper in your ways and you shall be only oppressed and robbed continually and there shall be no one to help you. Your ox shall be slaughtered before your eyes, but you shall not eat any of it. Your donkey shall be seized before your face, but shall not be restored to you. Your sheep shall be given to your enemies, but there shall be no one to help you. This was a curse for covenant disobedience, for unfaithfulness, for disobeying God's law. And for seven years, seven long years, Israel feels the sting and the fear and the empty, aching bellies from hunger for the curse of disobedience to the Lord and breaking his covenant. In verse 6 of chapter 6 of Judges, we read, And Israel was brought very low because of Median, and the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. So very low, the, 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 the term low in Hebrew is yadal, and it means being made very tiny, very insignificant, very poor. This was also foretold in the warnings of covenant curses that Moses gave Israel back to Deuteronomy 28 and verse 43. Moses says, the sojourner, the traveler, those who were temporarily in the land who is among you, shall rise higher and higher above you, and you shall come down lower and lower. In verses 49 and 51 of of that chapter in Deuteronomy, Moses warns, The Lord will bring a nation against you. It shall eat the offspring of your cattle and the fruit of your ground until you are destroyed. And it shall not leave you grain, wine, or oil, the increase of your herds or the young of your flock until they have caused you to perish. Now with this in mind... Israel has decided to pay attention. They are seeing the curses play out. They can see their extermination just over the horizon. And who was there to turn to for Israel but Yahweh? Even though they turn away from the Lord again and again, there was no one to turn to except the Lord God, the one true God. The gods of the Canaanites, like the gods of other pagan nations, are silent and unmoved by their worshippers' cries of distress. Just as today, the gods of modernity, like wealth, fame, beauty, licentiousness, we could go on and on. These are bottomless pits for sacrifice, with fleeting blessings, magnifying the disappointment to come. When these gods, with a little g, beckon people to the abyss, they provide no rescue when their prey fall headlong into the blackness, for that was their intention all along. That was the plan of these pagan gods, these false gods being worshipped. Let's turn back to Judges chapter 6. I'm going to read verses 7 through 10. What happens next? 
When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel and he said to them, thus says the Lord of the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. So Israel cries out to Yahweh on account of the Midianites. What does Israel expect, do you think? Well, I think they expect what has happened in the past. In the account of Kushan, double wicked of Mesopotamia, in the account of Eglon, the fat cat of Moab, in in the account of Jaban and Sisera of Canaan, they expect Yahweh to raise up a deliverer, a rescue, a savior, as he did in these previous accounts that we read about in the book of Judges. They expect a man of action to call out and lead the army who will drive out and defeat the oppressor. What the Lord sends them instead is a prophet, a man of God who delivers a message. This is like, reminded me of a Western, a Western where the, the, the fort is under attack again. And the call goes out, the blowing of a bugle goes out, calling the cavalry to come and ride to the rescue and save the people in the fort. Just like the cavalry has done time and time again. We'll just blow the bugle and they'll come. They appear. So it's expected. Maybe it's taken for granted. Can you imagine being on that stockade wall? You're looking out on the plains in front of the fort. And you see a lone figure come into view, riding very slowly. It's not the cavalry. It's not, it's not a troop of horse dashing across the plains, coming to rescue with, with, with sabers flashing and guidons flowing in the, in the wind and their, and their bugles blowing. No, it's one single solitary figure coming. And he gets closer and closer and he's at the stockade and you look down and you see it's a pastor sitting on a donkey holding a Bible and he reminds you of the blessings and the marvelous things God has done for your nation and then he pronounces that you have squandered God's blessings and he rides away And you're left shouting, that's not what we wanted. We we want someone to come rescue us, not someone to come and tell us what we've done wrong. We never like to hear that, do we? No, we don't. But this prophet that we read about in Judges, where he appears in this story, is exactly in the same place that Deborah appears in the story in chapter 4. However... There's a difference between this prophet and Deborah the prophetess. This prophet does not appear to set in motion the process of deliverance like Deborah did. But he accuses the Israelites of covenant infidelity and tells them by implication of what's said and how it's said that they have forfeited all 
right to deliverance. That's something that strikes right at the heart. You expect to be rescued, and you're told you have forfeited the right to be rescued. We have all forfeited that right. But rescued we've been. And that's marvelous. This brings us to the first point I would like to make. We must hear the word that rebukes us. We must hear the word that rebukes us. God rescues us from peril time and time again. Often when we're unaware of the danger that we are in beforehand. And there are times when we remain unaware afterwards. And rarely, if you think about it, does the rescuing alone bring a person to true repentance and faith. Now, I think this goes on a lot more frequently than we like to admit in our modern age of materialism and naturalism, that God does perform rescues that are basically miraculous. One night when I was a patrol officer, some officers I were working with was working with, um, they pull into a parking lot of a store and they get out of their, their patrol car. And as they're getting out of the patrol car, an armed, armed robber comes bursting out of the door of the store, gun in hand. Well, these officers weren't expecting this. They were stopping in to get a cup of coffee. And a gunfight ensues over the hood of the patrol car. Two officers and a gunman moving around the car, shooting at each other. A tremendous amount of rounds are expended. And I was talking to one of the officers afterwards. The officers both survived. They were not struck. The gunman did not survive. And this officer says to me, Kenny, it was like the hand of God came down in front of us and protected us. It was powerful. He could not explain how he survived that, how his partner survived that. Sadly, it did not change the man's life. He gave credit to God for saving him. He knew it was divine intervention, but he continued to lead the life he had always led, a life dedicated to the sin that we find in in the human experience in the fallen world. He retired, and he died soon after retiring. Died a sad, lonely life, death. Um, never coming to Christ, as far as I know. But things like this happen. Things like this happen, and I don't know what it is. Whether we, just, we easily dismiss it. Or we're struck at the time like this man was. God saved me. But somehow we convince ourselves later that no, there's an explanation for that. Oh, it's just luck, just chance. You know, the guy was a bad shot. Um, his weapon wasn't very accurate, whatever. But the rescue alone is not sufficient to bring one to faith. We must hear the preaching of Christ's message, his first public utterance according to Matthew's gospel, repent, repent for the kingdom of heaven as it is at hand. Why must this be so? Why is this so hard for us to hear? Why do so many today who bear the name of Christian 
neglect to utter that call to repentance. It's for the same reason that Israel could not remain on the path of righteousness through their own power. The Apostle John in his gospel tells us we are all lovers of darkness. And James in his letter reveals that we are all enemies of God, transformed only by his grace and the indwelling of the Spirit. It's not something we can change on our own. No matter what miracles we, we, we experience or hear about. So the prophet here in Judges was warning Israel against presuming that their appeal to Yahweh will always get a favorable response. The prophet's message demonstrates that there's no simple equation between calling on the Lord and repentance. In other words, a cry for help in desperate circumstances does not necessarily mean a transformed heart. The prophet makes it clear that appealing to Yahweh is not a device by which Israel can automatically secure its future. And this is how many atheists view Christians. They see Christians, those who call themselves Christians, maybe nominal Christians, but self-identified Christians, they see them living lives, living lives like unbelievers until things go haywire. And then calling on, to use the atheist, you know, disparaging term, calling on the sky god to magically rescue them from their predicament. And unfortunately, for too many who call themselves Christians, this is entirely accurate. They live daily lives as practicing atheists with biblical truths rooted only shallowly, in a shallow manner in intellectual thought and never actually taking root in the heart. But Israel, Israel's ability to call on Yahweh meant invoking a relationship under a covenant. That's the only reason they could call on the Lord God. And yet Israel had not fulfilled their obligations under the covenant. Again, that word from the prophet, from Yahweh, but you have not obeyed my voice. And the prophet's speech ends unexpectedly with that pronouncement. Imagine being on the receiving end of this speech. Is the Lord going to help us? It's not clear. We've broken the covenant. Maybe Yahweh is done with us. What do we do now? We're doomed. What's to become of us? This brings us to the second point I'd like to make. God's grace maintains us. God's grace maintains us. This message from the prophet seems to have been left unfinished. After the accusation in verse 10, we expect at this point for him to say, therefore, followed by a pronouncement of judgment, don't we? He's pointed out how they've been disobedient, how they have violated the covenant. 
And that calls for curses. The scene then shifts suddenly from this prophet and quite dramatically and unexpectedly. And instead of the expected and deserved judgment, we read in verse 11, now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, as his right, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord appears at this point. Now, this is the angel of the Lord's third appearance in the book of Judges. The first time he appears in chapter 2 to charge Israel with unfaithfulness. And the second time he appears in chapter 5 is to, call, is to curse the town of Moros for not coming to assist the Lord. But this time, surprisingly, he does not come in judgment. We would expect that. He's not standing with a raised sword, which we see the angel of the Lord doing again and again. Balaam sees him like this. Joshua, before Jericho, sees him like this. David sees him like this over Jerusalem. The raised sword of God's judgment. No. We don't see that. We see him come and sit down under a tree. He comes and sits down under a tree like Deborah sitting under a tree in chapter 4. He comes and sits like Deborah as a judge in the positive sense to start the process of Israel's deliverance. An undeserved an unexpected deliverance. Now, the angel of the Lord, as many of you undoubtedly know, is the visible manifestation of Yahweh, the Lord God. And in fact, in verse 14 that we're going to get to this morning, he is referred to directly as Yahweh. He's called the Lord God. And in the account of Gideon's interaction with the angel of the Lord, we're going to see, I want you to look for this, the physicality that's described in the text for this angel. This angel is not a, 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 an, an ethereal being, not like a, a, a wafty spirit thing, you know. Um, the angel does things a person does. He has bodily movements. He has hands that he uses. He touches things. And he personally, this angel personally gives a command to Gideon. He doesn't just relay a message, the usual role of the malach or angel in the Old Testament and in the New. This then was the answer to the questions caused by the abrupt ending of the prophet's speech. The Lord does not give up on his people even when we deserve it. And we need to give thanks for the Lord's unchanging nature, his, immut his immutability. Because if he did change, like those who believe in a God with passions, or a God who evolves with his creation, then he might grow tired of us and our constant need of rescue and our constant disobedience 
and he might change his mind about salvation. But praise him for his faithfulness and the fact that he does not change as easily as we do. How we can shift, we see the Israelites shifting from loyalty to disobedience time and time again. We have no need to worry when we have responded to Christ's call because we are secure in his grace. We will never be outside of his grace if we have responded to his call. He has saved us, he has transformed us. And yet, though we stumble, he remains faithful to us through it all. Back to Judges. I want to read verses 12 through 24. Please follow along. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you. I will be with you. And and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot and brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes. And fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear, you shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day it still stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Ahazerites. So the angel of Yahweh is visible to Gideon. We see this in verse 12. And he spoke to Gideon, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Now this is the youngest guy from this house belonging to the clan that is the smallest, least important clan in Manasseh. And he's called mighty man of valor. He has not done anything to earn valor at this point in time. But the Lord is telling him who he is. The Lord knows his identity. And Gideon had no idea just how accurate the statement, the Lord is with you, actually was. He does not realize that that he is talking to the Lord. He's under the impression that that it is a man. He calls the man 
Adonai, or Lord, which is a, a, a polite and formal way that one man, well, a person would speak to a man, a human. And the first statement to Gideon is a promise. The Lord is with you. This promise is made to Gideon to equip him for what he's being called to do, which is deliver Israel from Midian. And to do so without the Lord being with him is an impossibility. We saw how the Midianites and their allies were described. They're without number. They're on camels. An animal that is used in war, like, like a cavalry horse. But this promise does raise all sorts of problems for Gideon. If Yahweh is with him, then why is he beating out grain in the wine press? He's in the wine press doing this because they're hiding from the Midian, Midianites. So the Midianites don't steal this grain. He's surreptitiously going about his harvesting process. If Yahweh is with him, why is Midian raiding them every year for seven years? And he asks the angel of the Lord this, if Yahweh is with him, then why isn't the Lord doing the Egypt stuff to their enemies? Did the stuff before, Lord, why, why, why is Yahweh not doing it now? And Gideon protests his commission as savior for Israel. As I said, his clan is the weakest in the tribe of Manasseh. He's the youngest in his house. He doesn't see himself fit for leadership or deliverance. He views himself as unsuited and inadequate for this great thing that the angel of the Lord is calling him to. But against Gideon's inadequacy, which is in fact true, he is inadequate, the Lord stacks his adequacy. And which one outweighs? It's the Lord's adequacy that outweighs our inadequacy time and time again. Verse 16, the Lord says, but I will be with you. This is a repetition of verse 12, but it clarifies that Yahweh is the speaker. It's no longer Yahweh will be with you. The angel of the Lord says, but I will be with you. The angel of the Lord is Yahweh. Gideon asked for a sign that this promise is really God's promise. Verse 17, show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. So Gideon asks his visitor not to depart so he can prepare a meal for his visitor. This sounds very much like Abraham when the Lord meets Abraham, right? The Lord with, with two angelic messengers. And Abraham goes to prepare a morsel of bread. Well, here Gideon prepares a meal. And this meal, I mean, it takes some time. It's not that he's popping something in the microwave, you know, and in a couple of minutes he's, out, he's back, you know, outside serving it. No, he takes a young goat and prepares that. And he makes unleavened cakes from flour. Now, flour is, uh, this is a, a fine meal. This is not everyday stuff, which would be barley or other you know, common grains. Flour is, is special. So he puts the goat in a basket, we're told, and the broth from cooking the goat in a pot, and he brings the meal to this visitor who's waiting patiently, and he's told by the visitor, take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. So he soaks them really good. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand. See, so we see this physicality here. 
and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes, and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. Now, rocks are not a source of fire. This is not where you'd want to uh, cook something. It burns it up, and the angel, we're told the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. There's a paradox that we should see in this account, a very revealing paradox. While Gideon wants assurance of the Lord's promise to him, and that is really the angel of the Lord speaking to him, but when that assurance comes, Gideon is terrified by it. In verse 22, he says, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Rather than settling him, it unsettles him. It's proved to him what's going on, but this proof is terrifying to him that it's actually occurring. And this brings us to our third and our last point that I'd like to make. The promise of God with us equips us. The promise of God with us equips us. This is the promise that God gives to his unwilling or hesitant servants. We see this in the Bible time and time again. And I just want to draw out a few examples. There are many, many more, but these will serve to, 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 to prove the point I'm making. Think of when Moses, balking upon receiving his mission orders to go to Pharaoh in order to bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. In Exodus, we are told, Yahweh said, but I will be with you. Then after the death of Moses, Yahweh appoints Joshua to take the great leader's place and lead Israel, Israel who was often rebellious, who is a stiff-necked people, who, who buck against the authority of their leaders. He's to lead them into the promised land. And Yahweh told him, I will be with you. And when Jacob was fleeing from his brother Esau, who had vowed to murder him, God appeared to him in a dream at Bethel, assuring him of blessing. And in this dream, Yahweh told him, I will be with you. At the great commissioning of his disciples on the mountain in Galilee, after his resurrection, Jesus tells his disciples, I am with you always. Paul, in Corinth, encounters severe opposition. He's reviled by the Jews. And Paul declares that from now on, he is going to go to the Gentiles. He shakes the dust of them off his feet. He's going to have nothing more to do with them. The Lord Jesus appears to him that night in a dream and told them not to be afraid, to keep on preaching, that no one would harm him. And Jesus reassures Paul, I am with you. And prior to the birth of Jesus, an angel appears to Mary's betrothed, Joseph, in a dream and revealed to him that her child was the one that Israel had been waiting for, hoping for, praying for. He had come. And the angel repeats a prophecy from Isaiah. And he tells Joseph, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, 
Emmanuel, which means God is with us. This is the promise of both the old and the new covenant, that God will be with his people. The promise has equipped his saints through the ages. And in a time and place of comparative safety and security, this promise seems to be one that can be taken lightly, that it can be made lightly. For what does it mean to those of us who are comfortable? It's easy to take it for granted and to think maybe we deserve it. But when we face opposition, when we face powerful enemies, when we face potential for serious injury or death, like Jacob, like Moses, like Joshua, like Gideon, or like Paul, our world becomes very unsteady and unsure. But we are reminded in these accounts in the Bible that the Lord is with us. And when the death of someone we love shatters our peace, we're assured that the Lord is with us in those dark times. When it seems that all have turned against us and that we are alone, we are promised that the Lord is with us. Always. He'll never desert us. No matter what. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for the assurance you provide us in your word, Father. We give thanks for the mighty works that you do in our lives, Father. We give thanks for the things that you do in our world that we witness, Father. Give us the courage to face this world, Father, no matter how dark or dangerous it may appear to us, Father. May the Holy Spirit remind us continually in our hearts and in our minds that you are with us, that you have overcome the world through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Father, let us not be afraid, but let us not take your salvation, your rescue, your Savior. Let us not take these precious things for granted, Father. We are not deserving of them, and we realize that, and we give you thanks for your grace and your mercy upon us. Father, bless us as we go to the table and have the Lord's Supper this morning. Father, bless the remainder of this day. Bless the quarterly gathering this evening. And bless your beloved, my brethren, here today and online. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.